Welcome back to this season of the VMP Anthology Podcast, our 16th, dedicated to the story of Cadet Records. I'm your host, Stephen Anderson. On this episode, we'll explore one of, if not the, most controversial blues albums ever made, Muddy Waters' notorious 1968 album, Electric Mud. We'll hear from Marshall Chess, the album's co-producer, and a man whom Waters often referred to as his white grandson, as well as Robert Gordon, the author and documentarian who quite literally wrote the book on the legendary bluesman. In his biography, Can't Be Satisfied, The Life and Times of Muddy Waters, Robert poses a question in reference to the bizarre portrait of Waters that takes up the gatefold of electric mud. Likening the blues legend to the Mona Lisa, he asks, is he smiling or is he wincing? It's a puzzling quality that's just as present in the music as it is the packaging. From song to song, even moment to moment, Waters' performance on Electric Mud veer from hesitation to hubris, from confounded to commanding. And though it was his best-selling album on chess up to that point, Waters would eventually disown the album after a sharply negative Rolling Stone review halted its sales practically overnight. Listening to the album on its own terms more than 50 years after its release is still a rattling experience, but imagine hearing it as a longtime Muddy Waters fan might have in 1968. Here's Robert Gordon on the circumstances that led Muddy to record Electric Mud in the first place. So when Electric Mud comes out in 1968, Muddy has been recording for chess for what, about 14, 16 years? You know, I forget when Aristocrat became chess, but he's been, he's basically been with them almost 20 years at this point. Um, he is kind of more than a decade after his prime fame, his initial prime fame. And He's been trying to find his place in the market for a number of years. You know, he's going along with chess. Folk gets popular. Muddy cuts an acoustic folk record, you know, that gets a a nice little audience. So he does another one. Another experiment Muddy agrees to is Brass and Blues, which is basically putting... Um, remarkably unsatisfying horn arrangements on his blues records. That should have been a great record. Blues is just a half step away from rhythm and blues and rhythm and blues, you know, is great with horns. So Muddy Brass and Blues should have been a great record, but the horn arrangements feel much more like some square Las Vegas presentation than what they should feel like. Um, But it's an indication that Muddy is going along with it. You know, Muddy's like, yes, sir. I'm a recording artist for your label. You said to be here at one o'clock today and bring my guitar. I'm here. I'm at one o'clock. I've got my guitar. You know, what are we going to record? He's that's kind of the mode he's in. And so when in 68, he shows up at that appointment and they say, okay, Mud, LSD, (laughs) you know, I think Electric Mud is Muddy's acknowledgement that he is out of tune with the times and looking for a way to connect. And it's Muddy's embrace of always trying something new, which he 
you know, it's not for naught that he's the godfather of Chicago blues because he plugged in, you know, he took that acoustic sound and made it electric. He was pushing. Um, so going psychedelic was not necessarily out of character for Muddy. It's the kind of experiment he would have done, but it's not out of character for him to say, I'm going to go somewhere I'm not comfortable. You know, and that, and that I think speaks very well of Muddy Waters. Basically, my idea was like, this is like a movie and you're going to be an actor in it. Here's Marshall Chess. This is not changing you from being a blues singer. Not at all. I didn't want to do that. You're just the greatest fucking person to do this with out of all the people. And maybe we can make some, you can make some money. Look what Rotary Connection did, you know? And yeah, man. Yeah. Whatever you say, baby. I was really struck going back to it. I haven't listened to Electric Mud in probably 10 or 15 years, maybe more. And so I went back to listen to Electric Mud and to After the Rain, the two psychedelic albums. And I really was impressed today, now, with how blues-based they are. And I really like that aspect. Um, and I was really surprised how... Like I, what I remembered was something that was much more psychedelic oriented and less blues oriented, but I hear it now and I hear, Oh, it's very distinctly blues based with a very heavy psychedelic dose. And I like that. Here's the thing I don't like about it. There's still something about both of these records. I don't like, but I changed my attitude on it in this present listening. What I don't like is that every other record that Muddy made, it's a Muddy Waters record. Muddy Waters sings lead, usually plays lead guitar, and the band is supporting him. And that's not what's going on here. What's going on here, this is really a producer's record. There's a sound that other people hear, and they want Muddy Waters to be a part of. So it's much more of a... Uh, it, I was much less disturbed i was much more drawn in if i thought of this as an ensemble piece and muddy is just one of the instruments like uh the psychedelic guitar you know like the drums it's just these whatever five or seven or so instruments decided to get together in a room and see what happened and that and and if I think about it that way, Muddy becomes a much more adventuresome, kind of open-minded guy. He says, Oh, yeah, I'm interested in, you know, seeing where else the blues can go. I'll I'll, I'll get in a room with you bearded hippies and um see where you can take this. And I'll just be the voice aspect of this. You'll be the you'll be the guitar aspect, you'll be the organ aspect, you'll be the drums aspect. You know, you guys do your thing. We'll each carry, we'll each be a tent pole. And, and when I think about it like that, it really works. Even though Electric Mud is billed as a Muddy Waters album, understanding it as a producer's record, an ensemble piece, helped unlock the album for me in a way. Ever since first hearing it as a blues-obsessed teenager, I'd always kind of felt uneasy listening to it. To me, it wasn't a far cry to imagine Muddy being locked in a studio while all of these wailing guitars and crashing drums blared on around him. I told Robert that I often felt like Electric Mud was the sound of Muddy in danger. I think that's what I used to hear. You know, I used to hear Muddy being put somewhere he didn't want to be put. 
and 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 I think I still hear that to a degree, but I hear more willingness on Muddy's part to be there. And when you say you hear an element of danger, I hear an element of risk taking. You know, I hear Muddy saying, "All right, boss, producer man, you know, you want to take a left turn. Everybody knows it's a right turn here, but you want me to take a left turn. I'm gonna I'm gonna do it for you because." You're hearing something, and I want to see if I can help you get there. I think about on Electric Mud when Muddy does uh, Manish Boy. And in the quiet part of those early notes where there's space, there's some weird-ass sound in the background. You know, it sounds like a baby crying. Oh, yeah. Everything gonna be all right this morning. Oh, yeah. It sounds like an electric guitar, a little bit. You know, it sounds like a synthesizer. Who the hell knows what it is? I figure Muddy's probably got his headphones on going, you know, oh, Lordy, now what? You know, but I know the words. I know how the song goes. Let's try it again and see where it goes. And and he's willing, you know, and but but that that little, you know, that it's such a different it, it announces itself as a different take on a familiar song, because where normally there's that keening answering slide to Muddy's vocal, there's just this weird crying sound in the background. You know, so I was really taken by that when I went back to listen um, as an example of the strangeness. Several times between the two albums, I think you can hear Muddy. He's like one second away, one beat away from going, Marshall, what the fuck is going on here, man? You know, but he does it. And I think that's important. You know, that was it. I, I, I was into psychedelics. I was into all the guitar players, you know, all the early English guitar players and all that. And I was uh, having those kind of conversations with all these the young black musicians, Phil Upchurch, Pete Cozy, who was totally psychedelic out, you know. We talked about it. And uh, Charles helped me. Charles and Gene Barge helped me put them together, you know, to make them into a band. Um, and... Uh, it really gelled. They saw, you know, they liked it. I mean, it's it's like none of them were playing that style be- separately. So uh, when we got in the studio, it was it was a very free form, maybe weeks a week for sure of rehearsing without money. You know, rehearsing the songs, the equipment. I had to buy Marshall amplifier. We didn't even have the equipment. I had to buy cozy wah wah pedals, and I bought a Marshall amp because it had my name on. I like that. I bought a big amp, even though that was the best amp at the time. This big Marshall amps. That's what Hendrix used. And uh, we had a lot of talk, talking about it. You know, can we get way out, go way out as you want? I said, that's what I want you to do. I said, go beat, you know. And then we, it just layer by layer. So, you know, by, I forget the first cut we did, but that was a layer by layer. The first couple tracks were the hardest, you know. They didn't know how far they could go. Nothing was written. Uh, Charles did write the changes, chord changes. That was it. Not no playing parts. 
So it was totally just chord changes based on the original blues song. And uh, so they kept, we kept rehearsing those tracks, you know, but, but not, not with all the flourishes and fancy stuff, the basic rhythm track based on the changes that Charles had written. And then uh, when money came in, you know, and they all respected money, you know, they had loved you know, money was highly respected by everyone there. And um, we started playing, you know, and my, and money, he was sitting in a chair and, I mean, I swear, you know, later on he says, what's all that? Again? But he, I swear he got into it. My, in my view of it, he got into it, you know. You can hear the vocals. That's not, it's not like Wolf's just mouthing it. He was trying to, he understood what I was trying to do. And Muddy also was a guy who could take chances with his music. He was willing to, to go for it, you know. And, uh, you know, I wasn't sure whether he really liked it. And I don't think he was sure whether he really liked it. When I listen to the record, I do not hear Muddy Waters enjoying it in the moment. I hear Muddy Waters having said, I will participate in an experiment. And I hear him participating. And I hear him sometimes with more enthusiasm than other times. And occasionally he sounds comfortable, but he doesn't really sound comfortable. You know, most of the time he does not sound comfortable. Most of the time he sounds willing. And I think the fact that another psychedelic record was made after the first one is an indication of Muddy's relationship with his record company more than anything. They asked him to make another record and Muddy Waters was raised in a way to say yes to the boss. And so he did. I also think that you referenced this period of about, you know, of some weeks after the record's release, uh, basically prior to the Rolling Stone review of it. As I recall, Rolling Stone reviews the record, pans it, um, shuts down, basically shuts down the, according to Marshall Chess, the record was really taken off at a hot clip had sold over 100,000 copies, and then Rolling Stone pans it, and DJs quit playing it because they don't want to be uncool, and um, sales drop off precipitously. And supposedly, Muddy liked the record until that same point in time, and then he didn't like it. And I don't know if there's any hard proof of that. Muddy's own feelings about the album aside, the early sales of Electric Mud signaled to Marshall that his concept of radically recontextualizing Chess's marquee artists for the psychedelic era could be just the ticket for the label's success in the late 60s. Everything about Electric Mud felt like a bellwether for the changes that were brewing within the walls of 320 East 21st Street in the late 1968, all the way down to the album's start black and white cover, and the songs' runtimes being listed as hundreds of seconds rather than minutes on the back of the jacket. Giving the record length, giving the song lengths in seconds is sort of a warning to the buyer. You know, this is not going to be what you normally get or what you normally expect. It's letting the kids run the show, you know. I mean, Leonard kept his other labels going until he sold the company, but he knew that, it, I guess he knew that, that the odds would become apparent 
pretty quick after a couple three releases from Marshall. You know, do we keep this going or not? And they kept it going. You know, it's impressive. I mean, Cadet was out there to be a space cadet, and and they were. You know, they were pushing things in unusual ways, and that's how new trends are made because people do something different. The trend for psychedelic blues has been slow to take off, but it doesn't mean it's off base. (laughs) Soon enough, and to varying levels of success, Marshall would repeat his formula, recasting other chess and cadet artists like Howlin' Wolf and Ramsey Lewis in almost unrecognizable musical contexts. It can be easy to dismiss the albums now as tasteless cash grabs or dated products of their time. I mean, Howlin' Wolf himself called the Howlin' Wolf album dog shit, sales figures be damned. But taken together, they exemplify Cadets' newfound spirit of pushing boundaries and taking risks. Listening to them now, in light of all that's changed in the pop music landscape in the 50-plus years since their initial release, it's clear to hear the impact that these controversial records would have on everything from Miles Davis's so-called electric period to the combative brashness of hardcore rap's golden age. In the long term, Electric Mud has, you know, been more disparaged than respected i think it's looked at as muddy's psychedelic experiment and a phase that the company was going through and muddy just had to endure but i think it's thanks to people like chuck d coming to muddy waters as complete innocence that we can appreciate the record for the drive and the intention that it does have this was far from throwing five people in the room and saying okay start playing and in 45 minutes we'll have a record the arrangements here are so unusual that you know they had to rehearse this stuff for muddy to know where to sing his songs so it's different and so the legacy is to me what i take the most from electric mud after all these years is more almost more conceptual and attitudinal than it is artistic about the music particularly because i think the fact that electric mud could inspire young black rappers and hip-hop artists uh 30 years after it was made 25 years after it was made is an indication that it's okay to get out of your comfort zone because that record brought Chuck D into the Muddy Waters fold. He came in not the usual door. You know, he didn't come in through the f- 50s chess record hits. He came in through one of the two doors open th- that Cadet Records opens. And that door doesn't lead directly to blues. You know, that door leads to more psychedelic stuff. But Chuck wouldn't have gone in that door had not the psychedelic stuff taken him there. So I I think that the legacy of Electric Mud is the reminder to us all not to be afraid of trying something new, not to be afraid of taking artistic chances. That's certainly what Muddy did here. He took artistic chances.
Cadet's risk-taking would pay dividends in the short run, but one of Chess's biggest bets, selling the company at the peak of its success to an audio tape manufacturer in early 1969, would set in motion a series of events that ultimately led to the label's rapid unraveling. On the next episode of the VMP Anthology podcast, we'll examine Cadet's meteoric rise and tragic downfall through the other seven albums included in the box. Along the way, you'll hear how a hashish trip in Morocco inspired Ramsey Lewis's tribute to the Beatles' most experimental album, as well as an Etta James album of Paul Simon originals that could have been. Stick around. This season of the VMP Anthology podcast is hosted, written, and produced by Steven Anderson. It's executive produced by Andrew Winnestorfer, and it's produced and edited by Jim Hankey from the Vinyl Emergency podcast. A special thank you to Marshall Chess for being so generous with his time and for helping with this podcast and the liner notes, because without him, this box wouldn't have happened and these albums wouldn't have been made in the first place. So thank you, Marshall, for your contribution to music history. And thank you again for your help making this project a reality. And so, my friends, we leave you with this. Listen to more Soulful Strings. (laughs) 